Okay, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Psalm 91 at the beginning, and we're going to reflect back on it at the end of the sermon. We're not going to talk about it at all during the sermon, but it's an important passage for what we're talking about. And if you're someone that has a physical Bible and you just want a life hack on how to find Psalms without like looking it up in the table of contents, just go to like halfway through the Bible, like 50%, just kind of like crack the Bible right there and then open it and just go left. You're in the book of Psalms. It's super easy. All right. Is that helpful? No, no. <laughs> all right, go ahead and stand on up. We're going to go ahead and read this. This is, uh, again, one of the Psalms. And again, all, everything in the book of Psalms is poetry. And so it should be read as inspired words of God that are poetic, which is awesome because we, that's a picture of the fact that God loves the arts and he pours into it. It's not just a historic play-by-plays that we see in the Bible. We have those too. But we also have poetry and art and beauty. It's really cool. This passage is a passage many of you have heard. And we're going to go ahead and digest it together, starting with verse 1. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your tent for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone you will tread on the lion and the cobra you will trample the great lion and the serpent because he loves me says the lord i will rescue him i will protect him for he acknowledges my name he will call on me and i will answer him I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. The author of the book that kind of triggered the series that we're in right now, her name is Nancy Guthrie. And she was talking about the fact that two of her kids um, died at childbirth. Like right when they were born, they, they passed away. Gabriel and Hope. Six months after Hope died, Nancy was in a Bible study, just six months after that. And in the Bible study, they sat down and they read the psalm that I just read for you. I don't know if reading that psalm, part of your brain, not the cynical part, but, but the skeptical part, asked the question, I don't know if that's true. Disaster won't come near me if I lift up God as my rock and my salvation. I will have a long life and that's guaranteed. Trouble and pain are all only going to be something that I see from a distance with the wicked. It's not going to be something that I personally experience. Nancy had a hard time because she was like, that's not true. And yet I, at the same time, hold to the infallibility of scripture. I know that the Bible is trustworthy and true, and yet it is not meshing 
with my life as far as a reality. And that seems to be incongruent. I don't understand what's going on here. And she found an answer, and it was by going to the beginning. It's actually what we've been doing every single week in this series is starting in the book of Genesis and going through the scriptures and ending at the end of the Bible and then coming back to us in 2023. If you go back to the very beginning in Genesis, you have a picture of how everything went wrong in the very beginning. People who were created for life eternal all of a sudden had expiration dates on them. People who were, were intended to have this connection with God and this connection with creation and, and one another that was solid and good and healthy and not toxic all of a sudden experienced toxicity when sin entered the world. You've got the account of Satan manifesting himself in, in, in kind of cosplaying himself in, in this little like serpent, this, this, this snake. And that this snake brings into the equation with Adam and Eve a temptation to trust themselves rather than God. And as soon as that happened, all of a sudden, everything gets broken. But it's not just that. Something else happens. All of a sudden, we see God declaring a curse that he puts out on each of the people in that equation, on the serpent, on Eve, and on Adam. And this is what he says to the serpent. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Okay, so in, on one side, in one aspect, there's like a, a zoological, anatomical thing that's taking place with some creature. There's some type of a conversion process that takes place from a creature the way it was before this to after this, after that, that creature was utilized by Satan. So like a change in physiology for that. But then it's, God says this, and I cause hostility. It's like basically major beef, war, drama, and trauma. I will cause that between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, talking to the serpent, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And the interesting thing is that you could read that whole passage and think that it's just talking about this snake and Adam and Eve. And maybe the fact that, that from that point on, people are gonna echo Indiana Jones and just say, why did it have to be snakes? Why? You know, like, well, there's gonna be like a weird vibe from that point on that, that was gonna happen. But it's more than that. Everyone who read this passage read this last section as a promise. And the promise was that there was going to be from that point, Genesis 3 on, that there was going to be this hope that even though humanity and God, we were intended to be his children, that got broken, all of a sudden God was going to have the rescue plan embedded into humanity. And from that point on in scripture, we see a war taking place between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. That from Eve, from the very beginning, that, that through her family line, and Satan read that, heard that passage and understood that passage to mean that there's going to be some human child from this woman that is going to ultimately be his undoing, is ultimately going to go head to head against him in a match and win. That even though Satan would strike the heel of humanity, there's some child that was going to come from this line of Eve, from the offspring of the woman that will ultimately crush his head. And from that moment on, it's like, uh, I don't know if you've seen any of the John Wick movies, but one of my favorite parts of the movies is when all the assassins get like activated to go up against Keanu Reeves. And like they're hunting him down. And it's like basically poor Keanu Reeves, like Bill and Ted's excellent adventure dude. All of a sudden, everyone's hunting this guy. And they're like, hey, they're coming out of the woodwork just to kill him. And so that's, that's the same picture that we have here. The forces of the serpent are on a hunt for the offspring of the woman. Why? Because the offspring of the woman is prophesied to kill him. You have to kill it before it kills you. 
And if, you, if you've never read the Bible this way, you need to start reading the Old Testament this way. Look and read everything that's taking place between the strategy of Satan to take over the offspring of the woman. Now, Satan doesn't know who that ultimate offspring is going to be. He doesn't have it as specific as in the John Wick movies that this is John Wick. Instead, he just knows it's a human. And so you see like someone shooting buckshot, he's attacking every human. Every human is under attack. Every human is trying, Satan is trying to line them up with the offspring of the serpent. Declare your independence from God. You're your own destiny. You do you. Do whatever you want to do. Your morality, your perspective, your choices, they're all you. And so Satan's attack on humanity is to bring sin and us being like, doing what we want to do is actually in line with the offspring of the servant, of this of serpent. We see that continuing on. Uh, but every single time Satan tries to orchestrate the demise of the offspring of the woman, we see God stepping in to save. Uh, all of a sudden, God gets really specific that the offspring of the woman that's going to be the hope of the world is going to come through one family, Abraham's family, the Hebrews, that, that they are the chosen people, not because they did anything to warrant being chosen or that they were more attractive or moral or they had better skills. None of that. The fact was that they were chosen because they were the chosen ones that were going to bring that hope it will ultimately be the end of the serpent's reign. And so we see that taking place. So, so what does Satan do? He, all of a sudden he brings famine in the land. What does God do? He preserves his people by orchestrating Joseph and his family into Egypt because there's grain there. And, and so they're, then they're protected. 400 years goes by and all of a sudden the serpent enters the Pharaoh. We have Satan's work through the Pharaoh who says, all of a sudden, out of the blue, like it's like weird, it's, it's so bizarre. But all of a sudden he's like, you know what our biggest national issue is? The Hebrew people. So let's just like wipe them out. And so here's what I want you to do. Don't just like kill all the adults. We need them for slaves. Let's do this. If there's any Hebrew baby boy, all the midwives that are delivering a Hebrew baby boy, kill it. When it's born, kill it. Then we eradicate the problem. And, and, and if, if it's, and because that wasn't taking place by the midwives, they were dis, dis, disregarding that command, he doubled down and made sure that any of the children that were born, that were Hebrew baby boys, were chucked into the Nile to be drowned. Interesting thing, when you look at the pharaohs, um, all the pharaohs had this insignia on the centerpiece of their head. What was that? A serpent. Weird. And so all of a sudden you see that taking place, but God preserves them because one of those baby boys gets loose and that's Moses and Moses delivers his people. And we go through the Bible, we keep on continuing going through the Old Testament. And then we get to the place where, where God's people are exiled out into Persia. And in Persia, all of a sudden, the serpent animates his next person that's going to do his bidding, a guy named Haman. And Haman has this original idea. You know what the best, the biggest threat that we have to our national security? It's these Hebrew people. Let's wipe them all out. This makes perfect sense. And it's through Queen Esther that they are again rescued. Time and time again, as you're going through the whole Bible, you see the hunt to destroy and decimate this offspring of the woman that's going to ultimately take out Satan. And then all of a sudden you get into the New Testament when the offspring, the one that God had chosen to be the one comes on the scene. Paul says this in Galatians 4. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, what? Which is a weird way to put it. He could have just said, who was born? Because he's not gonna say he was born of a dude. He was born of a parakeet. No, the fact that he so pinpoints the fact that he's born of a woman is Paul writing to his Jewish audience saying, remember Genesis 3. Genesis 3, there was a promise that even though sin entered this world and that we've been 
waging war against the offspring of the serpent between the forces of evil, all of a sudden, the thing that was always promised has finally happened. And so Jesus grows up. And so Satan knows that it's him. And as soon as he's a baby boy, Satan knows what's happening. The angels are proclaiming it. He's not deaf. And so what he does is he enters into his next ambassador of evil. He enters into Herod and he calls on Herod to do what, what was the only thinkable thing to do. All of a sudden, we had no idea who the person is. Now we know exactly who it is and we know where he's at. So just, just go ahead and wipe out all the babies that are two years old or younger in Bethlehem. Kill all the baby boys and that, that'll, that'll happen. And that's exactly what took place. But Jesus, along with his parents, Joseph and Mary, were in Egypt. They took refuge in, in another country to, to be able to pre, be preserved because God's hope, God's faithful. He's gonna bring that hope through. And so, so as Jesus' ministry comes, on, comes about, Satan is continuing trying to tempt him because if I can get him to sin, then Genesis 3 can't happen. He can't be an agent against sin if he's a person who has sin. And so he tries to tempt Jesus. Jesus just it ricochets right off. All the way, Jesus is at being attacked. Whenever Jesus inter interacts with the demon, it's a weird picture. You have examples of when Jesus sees a demon and the demons see Jesus and the demons go, what do you want with us? We know who you are. Why? They knew exactly who he was. They knew what he was there to do. That leads up right up to the cross because if you can't get this guy to fall into sin, if you can't get him to fail or slip up, he's just perfect. The best thing you could do is kill him because if you kill your greatest enemy, if you take out your greatest threat, there is no more enemy, there is no more threat. And so Satan had to be thinking when Jesus gets arrested, we are so close. I've never been close. Like after all these thousands of years, like we're finally here. And all of a sudden he's now, he's, oh, he's gonna, he's gonna get capital punishment. He's gonna die for this. Like this, he's pulling, God has pulled things out time and time again, but I'm hoping beyond hope that we're gonna take him out. And all of a sudden they're putting him on a cross and they're nailing him. And Satan still has to think we're so close, but at the same time, I could just see the angels coming through and doing something weird here, but I'm just, he's, he's bleeding. Maybe he's gonna bleed out. He's, but he's still breathing. And then the final spear goes into his side. And Satan had to think at that moment. He did it. He did it. Genesis 3 will never happen. The hope is gone. We finally pulled it off. And the thing that I just love about that is that Satan had no idea that his moment of greatest victory was actually his undoing. It was the defeat. Jesus in that moment was stomping on the head of the snake. It was crushed, game over, man, it's over. And so here's one of the things that we see that happens for anyone that puts their trust in that Christ, that savior. Let's read through this again. But when this, uh, this set time had fully come, God set his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to what? Well, that's a little specific. I mean, for crying out loud, like why doesn't he just say we might become adopted as children of God? I mean, sonship, that's pretty like male specific. You're using male pronouns here. Pronouns matter. So what's the deal here? Why doesn't he just say, I mean, because he's not just addressing dudes in the room. Is he just doing that like mankind thing where it's just like, this is basically everyone? Tim Keller, um, a guy who, late great Tim Keller, one of my favorite authors and pastor, he wrote about a time when he was preaching to this passage and he got to this place and the NIV still, some translations say they kind of give an equivalent that means the children of God because that's basically what he's saying. And so he, he was apologizing for the fact that the NIV says sonship when it means, you know, men and women. And he would do that every time he preached this passage until one day uh, someone in his congregation came up 
And she said, you, you need to understand, you don't need to apologize for this. This means so much to me. See, she had grown up in China. She, she, she was a Chinese American. This is Manhattan, New York, where, where, they, they were, where his, Tim Keller's church is. And she said, I grew up in a culture that elevates the rights and the role of a son. If you're a girl, you're looked at as a curse. At gender reveal parties, if they had such a thing, if like the cloud went pink, everyone was like, ah. I mean, it was bad. It's not a good thing. Women in that culture, especially little girls, were expendable. They were not valued or cherished. Same thing was true of the first century. And so she was telling Pastor Tim Keller, listen, I know, that, I know what you're trying to do, but maybe this lands differently for an American woman than it would for someone like me who grew up in a different culture, a culture a lot more like the original writing. Because when I read this, I'm like, wait, what? I get adopted and I get elevated to that level, the, the level of a son. I get, I get the, the uh, affection and the appreciation and the rights of a son. The first element, if you're a Christian, you've been adopted in sonship is rights. You have the benefits and the perspective of a kid that is, is you're, you're not just adopted as someone who's an outsider to the family. You're brought in as someone who's got all the benefits, all the inheritance and everything else. You've got rights. You got the benefit of the fact that you're connected to the king. I don't know if your dad was really established or like a joke, okay? But the truth is that if you're, if you're someone who's in Christ, you are connected to the king of the universe, the creator of everything, and he wants to adopt you as on that level, as a child of the king with the, the rights of sonship. He continues, because you are his sons, God sent his spirit, sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. And this gives us a picture of responsibility. So it's not just like I'm adopting you in. Whenever you step into a new relationship, there's responsibilities. And not like the, the lame, like, oh, these are my chores, but like responsibilities that, that are, you actually have a benefit. If you ever had a relationship that's struggled or it's been unhealthy, it's because someone has disregarded these. And that's the true, like in any marriage, like I think about like Julie and I, when I've like disregarded my responsibilities to care for her or to, to prioritize her, it has weakened the relationship. So responsibilities are amazingly good, healthy, awesome parts of it. And God says that when I adopted you as sons into my family, I sent my Holy Spirit inside of you. That's God in you. That means that wherever you go, God is with you. If the disciples were walking alongside Jesus and then one of them wanted to go get a taco, they could walk away from God. Okay, when God gave us the Holy Spirit, what, what happens now is that everywhere I go, when I'm getting a taco or not, God is with me perpetually, animating inside of me decisions that I would not make on my own or could not make on my own. Some of the responsibilities that we have as, as sons, as children of God, is, is the responsibility to, to flesh out the law of love. God has called us to be people who love God and love others. Yesterday, look around this room, okay? The, all the people that are in this room, that the coolest thing, you're all sitting on chairs that weren't here yesterday. They're, this room was blank, except for tables were set up everywhere with clothing, children's clothing, adult clothing, shoes, furniture, kitchen appliances. A ton of stuff was all around this room. And we had a line out the door, down the street for people that needed, needed those resources. Resources that people in this church gave because you either didn't need it or you, you had too many or whatever, but you gave it and it actually blessed somebody. We have a responsibility to be the type of people that say, it's not all about me. It's not about me. 
We, we, our world as a responsible person that's representing God is that we, we represent him that way. That's why we, we set up that campaign. And this is like, we're only gonna do this for another week or two, the uh, Bless to Bless campaign, that big black box with these um, things on it. Go over there, just bum rush it after the service, whether it's for you or you and your girlfriend or you and your family, find a way that you could bless someone in our community your neighbor or someone else you work with, and then just like text what, you, what, what it was that you did on the back because we wanna praise God for that. That's what God's crafted us to do. Somebody in one of the services at the church, they picked up this one and says, hear a, senior, uh, a senior's story. Like go and talk with, a, with an elder, elderly person and hear their story. And you know what they did? They went over to Pastor Dave. And they went, tell me your story. And I, no joke. And he's like, Okay, and so he started talking, and as he's talking, they just went. Which is messed up, don't do that, but get out there and do that, why? This, this is what we were crafted and created for. We have responsibility that, we have responsibility to actually say, God, I'm not, I'm not a free agent. I am representing you, you're, you're my heavenly father, and so I've got a responsibility to say, what are my decisions? How do I talk, how do I think? That's not just what I wanna do anymore, like I'm representing you. I am a child of you, and, and, that, and that means that there's things that are normative and natural that I would think or say or do that I'm gonna say, yeah, this makes sense to me, but I'm chucking it because it doesn't line up with you. And I get a chance to do that because I'm your kid. It means that we all of a sudden are proclaiming our connection to him. One of the things Jesus said to do, this is so cool, right after he died on the cross and rose from the grave, he said, go into the whole world and teach other people about me. Like represent that, we, we have a, that we're tight. And be baptized, because baptism is a weird way of saying that. It's like, I, I'm, I want my church family, I want the people that are around me to know that I'm, I wanna take my faith seriously. I wanna step in and be obedient. If you're a follower of Jesus, but you've never been baptized, because somebody told you sometime that you had to be like a super Christian to be baptized, or you had to like be like, I don't know, extra credit believer or something, AP varsity level Christian in order to be baptized, they haven't read the Bible. Because dudes who just got it, about Jesus got baptized like five minutes later. And so what I wanna challenge you is that if you're someone that is a Christian that has not been baptized, when we have church in the park, that's the next opportunity. And if you're like, wow, man, I've always been weirded out about like being on the, the screen. Well, there, we have a pool. It's basically you getting dunked in the pool for Jesus and proclaiming to your church family that you're connected to him. That's one of the things we get to do. So I wanna challenge you, jump in on that, sign up for that, because it's gonna be great. We're actually just gonna let people on the day of, if that's something that's, that God is pressing upon your heart, that you're a Christian, but you haven't been baptized, we're gonna let you just go for it on the day of. Because again, that's part of who we are as a kid. The rights, the responsibilities, and it continues. The spirit who calls out Abba Father. Because you are his sons, God set the spirit of a son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba Father. You know, this is one of those weird things. Sometimes Bible translators don't translate something into English, which is kind of the job of translation. It's, it's weird to me, I don't know why they do this. Like the word baptism, they never translate that into English, which means to dunk or immerse. Um, the, the word gospel, which means good news, they keep it as gospel, which is weird. This transliterate it rather than translate it. Abba is the same thing. This is not Greek or Hebrew, it's Aramaic. And it doesn't just mean father, otherwise this would say uh, the spirit of his son who comes into our heart, the spirit who calls out father, father. Abba, father. Abba, this word in Aramaic is what little kids would call their daddy. Like this is my dad. This isn't Shakespearean. Father. 
There's formality that we would expect with talking with the creator of the universe, the king of all things, one who's sovereign over everything, that God says, no, 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 no. When God's inside of you, you have a connection to me that says, dad. Dad. Now, here's the thing. A lot of you, not a lot of you, all of us in here have daddy issues. You might be sitting next to your dad, but we all, we all have daddy issues, all of us. Okay, I'm, you're, you might have had an amazing dad. You still have daddy issues. My dad was a good dad, really good dad. I've got issues. I've tried to be a good dad to my kids. I guarantee you they're going to need counseling one day. Promise it, okay? All of us have daddy issues, but here's the amazing thing that we have with our heavenly father. He's not like that. And you have the benefit of being called into a family where you have a perfect father who loves you, who's not only established, who's not only has status, but he desires from you the warmth of a healthy relationship. He leans in on that. Why? Because you're his kid. And this is so important because there's so many people, I talk to so many Christians that they're like, they, they, once the burnout of like the amazingness of being a Christian burns out, like they be like, man, I, I'm a sinner. I need to be forgiven. Jesus is the answer. They get saved. Woohoo! Everything's great. And then all of a sudden there's this like slow burnout where all of a sudden there's like, they start asking questions like, I, why would God forgive me? Like, I just have a hard time believing that God would actually love me because I know me. And when I became a Christian, I didn't get like fixed. All of a sudden, like I'm still like a mess in here. How could God still love and forgive me? And this verse answers that question. He loves you. He forgives you because you're his. You're his child. And he loves you. He loves you so much that his desire for you is to have that type of a relationship with him. Do you? As sons, you have the ability to have the rights, responsibility, relationship, and finally, refuge. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. In the first century world, you had a system where people paid off debt by becoming indentured servitude. Like a slave wasn't the, the uh, 17th and 18th century picture of slavery. It was still bad. It was still wicked, but it, it was different. It was a lot of people came into that willingly to pay off the debt. But whatever it was, you weren't looked at as a family member. You were, your status was to serve the family. There's a, there's a kid, my child, my son, and there's the servant, and they're not the same, okay? They don't have the same benefits. They don't have the same relationship, and they have a different set of responsibilities and purposes. And, my, and, and he's saying, no, 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 you are not that. You were a slave to sin. You were indentured servitude to, what, to the sin that totally encapsulated your life. But I freed you from that. I adopted you. And now guess what? You're not on the outside. You're not an extra person in this, in this family. You are one of my own. You're one of my kids. You're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. He is backing. You have backing that a servant or a slave wouldn't. You're his child. You're his which again, we kind of come back to that factor like, okay, well, hold on a second. If Jesus on the cross cut off the head of Satan, if he stamped on the feet, why is it that I'm still struggling? I still have pain and people still die prematurely. What's up with that? When I was in uh, fifth grade, I was at a church that had this like family camp and it was in the hills that um, surrounded Los Angeles. 
And whenever you like leave, like in LA, you don't see any wild animals. You're like, oh, a cat. I saw wildlife today. I mean, that's it. You barely see birds. But if you go up into the foothills, all of a sudden they say, okay, now up here, there's wildlife. They don't talk like that, but that's how it sounds in your head. Like whatever you got to do, you got to watch out for rattlesnakes because they got sharp parts that'll kill you. And it's like, you're like, okay. And I remember like hearing that over and over. I'm like, yeah, I've never seen a rattlesnake. I've heard people who've stumbled upon a rattlesnake, but I know that they can kill you, but that's it. And all of a sudden everyone was saying, hey, guess what? Somebody caught a rattlesnake. I'm like, are they dead? Like, no, no, no. They kind of was like, it was a grown up. I'm like, oh, are they dead? No, they caught him and they killed him. I'm like, shut up. We got to go see this. And so we like, bum rush it on over to see the dead rattlesnake and this thing was massive i mean like it would have killed andre the giant this massive massive rattlesnake and i'm i see the rattle i see like the whole body and then i see that the head is gone they they like took like a uh it's gonna get graphic but they took a shovel and like chopped its head off which made me want to instantly see the head like where is the head like i'll make a necklace out of it and they're like no 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 and then I learned something new that day. You, just because you killed the rattlesnake, the threat still exists because those fangs still have venom in there. If you've got little fifth grader Earl McFad who's making a necklace out of this rattlesnake head, that thing could still kill him. Those fangs still contain deadly venom. And we have that picture in scripture. Jesus cut the head off the snake on the cross. Satan his days are done. He's got an expiration date, but the threat still exists. And as his children, as God's children, as offspring of the woman, offspring of God himself, who through Jesus came from the line of Eve and God, it wasn't just like God stepping in and taking care of things. God becomes human. So you have all God and all human at the same time. We still have a battle um, Paul, when, he, when he's writing in Ephesians, he's talking about the fact that, that we need to stand firm because our battle isn't against people because that's, that's one of Satan's strategies. Like the best thing he could do, I've already lost the war, but the, what I can do is I can actually get people to be divided and, and like hate on each other and hurt each other and murder each other and make life horrible for each other and be toxic to one another. And so Paul says, listen, our battle isn't against flesh and blood. It seems like the biggest problem is those people or those people. Like it's, it's that group of people or that country or my mother-in-law or whatever it is. It's like, it's always somebody else that, that is the enemy. It's, no, those people aren't the enemy. Those people may have things that the enemy is animating. They may be operating more like an offspring of the serpent than an offspring of, of God. But the truth is, that's not who your enemy is. Satan's threat still exists. And so Paul looks around and he sees like a centurion because he, he was in prison again. And he sees like the centurion, all the body armor and stuff. He's like, that's what it's like. And then he starts to describe it. He says, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate, the thing that, that's covering like your vital organs, of breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all of the Lord's people. If you look down this list, this is the coolest thing. Because when I was a kid in the, in the 90s, I was like, man, I, I love the idea of like doing battle with demons. Like let's throw down with some demon. And like I'm putting on like spiritual armor to like go fight this demon. That's not what Paul is saying here. 
everything Paul is saying is not, this is what you're doing. He's like, everything Paul is saying is, this is what Jesus has already done for you. You're just leaning on his finished work for you. You're leaning on the truth about God. You're, you're, you're grasping, the thing that's protecting your heart is the fact that you're saved by God, that you've been, you have peace with God, that you're not an enemy of God, he's on your side, that he's for you, that you have faith in God, that you've been rescued by the work of God, and you're guided by the actual words of God. And when you're in struggles and you don't know what to do, you can pray to God. Everything on the list of how to fight the enemy of the serpent is leaning on Jesus. If you wanna encapsulate it into one statement, it's simply this. You wanna fight Satan? You wanna go through this life being in the refuge of God? Stick tight with Jesus. Stick tight with Jesus. His word, his way, his thinking, his actions. Be tight with him. Not yourself, not your own wisdom, not your own perspective, but with him. Because he is the one who's going to ultimately end the evil that we see. The book of Revelation talks about this. In Revelation 20, it says, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan has an expiration date. Author and pastor Francis Chan talked about how um, back in the day when the, remember the TV show 24? When that, that show was, was uh, playing, um, he got into it late, and so he was kind of like binging his way through it, and he was like on season three. And he started to realize, you know, Jack Bauer's out there saving the world. We could all thank God for Jack Bauer keeping us safe. But he, he was like, he was like, every episode, it looked like Jack Bauer was gonna die. And so like Francis Chan is like, his blood pressure is going up as he's watching like Jack Bauer nearly, he's, he's being tortured, he's gonna die. And then they'd get to the end of the episode, like, he didn't die. And then he'd start the next episode. And the, 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 the anxiety just would peak right back on up in the next episode. And then he didn't die by the end of that episode. And then Francis Chan had this reality because everyone else who was watching it in real time, was they're on season five. And he realized something. Hold on a sec. I'm in season three. I know Jack lives to season five at least. What am I sweating? Why am I freaking out? Because I know he's going to make it to that. I know that he's going to win in the end. And the same is true for you. If you're a child of God, no matter what this world throws at you, no matter what stress you have, whether it's governmental, it's interpersonal, whatever, whatever that is, cannot derail the greatest truth that you know who wins in the end. And if you're a child of God, you are on the winning side. You are on the winning side. And it gets better than that. In the next chapter, it says this. He was seated on the throne, said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this. And then he says, and I will be their God and they will be my children. Genesis 3, the prophecy that took place, it's gonna happen. It's gonna be won. The victory's already won, and we're gonna get the chance to see that. Nancy Guthrie put it this way in the book. She said, though God ordained a world in which evil and rebellion were possible, he didn't create them. He is, however, clearly sovereign over them. He made it clear that the days of evil are numbered. Satan does not get a W on this. 
There is no win in his category. There is no element that he's going to be victorious. He will be over and the toxicity that you are currently experiencing the side effects of will be done if you're a child of God. This past week, I had a chance to move my eldest son into his new home in Tennessee. And that's a weird thing. Uh, I've never done that before. Um, it's, it's weird. Like it's one thing when you're, we thought it was a big deal when he, he, we had him go to college out of state. Um, then we thought it was a big deal when he entered out of state, but there's something about him moving into his own place, like his new home. Like he's going to have a driver's license. It's going to say Tennessee. And yes, that does make me want to puke, but yes, that, that's, and it was one of those sayings where, um, I feel like the emotion of that moment, I thought it was going to be more intense because I started feeling the heaviness of that reality about a month out. And then we got to the, the final bit where we were driving away. And here's the thing, as we were saying goodbye to that weirdo, my awesome son, Micah, my offspring, um, I started to realize that as parents, we have this, if you're, if you're not a parent, this is some of the psychosis that parents have in their head. We have this illusion of control that if we keep you close to us, we're gonna keep you alive. We're gonna keep you from getting your heart broken. We're gonna preserve you in some way, shape or form. We're gonna keep you like bubble wrapped from this world. And that's garbage. It's a total illusion. And the, the idea is that if he's on his own, I can't keep him safe. I can't protect his heart. I can't keep bad things from happening. But here's the amazing thing that we have as, as Christians. I have no guarantee that Micah is gonna make it to 30. No guarantee. God has not promised me that. I have, certainly have no guarantee that he's not gonna have his heart broken time and time and time again. I have no guarantee that Micah is not going to make epic fail decisions that are just off and ruinous. But I do have this. Both Micah and I are able to say this. I'm a child of God. And if I'm a child of God, that means that I am his kid. I didn't do anything to earn that or warrant that. I have the capacity to, be, to know the fact that he is someone who is for me. And this is where Nancy found, by combing through the scriptures, the answer to Psalm 91. See, Psalm 91 isn't promising. If you're on the side of God, you're never gonna experience pain and that your life is never gonna be cut short. It's saying that Jesus underwent a life that was cut short for you so that your life would live forever. Jesus allowed disaster to come close to his tent so that you would have an experience on this earth where the disaster and the pain of your life is seven to 10 decades at most. And then an eternity of peace. That Jesus would experience the evil and the wickedness and that you would look on it from a distance because he would give you his righteousness and you'd be able to experience the fact that he made you new. And Nancy Guthrie all of a sudden said, 
and I'm going to be reunited with Hope and with Gabriel. I'm going to have that for eternity. Not because I did anything to warrant it, but because I'm a child of God. You know, when we were driving away from Micah, um, my brain just kept on thinking about when's the next time I'm going to see him? You know, is he going to come out to us or are we going to go out to him? But Jesus reminds us in scripture, I am coming back. I'm coming back for you. I go to prepare a place for you. And my father's house are many rooms. You know the way that I'm going. To which the disciples are like, we have no idea which way you're going. He says, I'm the way. I am the way, the truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is that your story? As the band comes out, I want to just encourage you, if you're not a Christian, if you can't say that, you could say that today. You could simply respond to God and say, I am, I am putting my trust in the fact that even though evil came into this world in Genesis 3, you made a promise back then that Jesus fulfilled on the cross. I don't get it, I don't completely understand it, but I'm trusting what you did for me to be enough for me. That what you did by dying on the cross and rising from the grave, I'm putting my trust in that. I don't have all the facts on that. But that is what is the most true thing that I could possibly put my hope in. And I wanna walk from this moment on as your child, not as a stranger, not as your enemy, not as a slave to sin, but as your adopted son. Is that your story? As we sing this last song, if you're not a believer, just say that to the Lord and walk out of here as someone who's brand new, as a child of God. Let's go ahead and stand as we do that.